We're continuing in a series this weekend called After God's Own Heart, which has been a journey through the life of David as his story is recorded in Scripture. And that whole idea of after God's own heart really is not about us exalting in David, in King David. It's not us paying attention to him in a particular way that you know we worship him or something else like that. But really, as we look at the life of David, what we see demonstrated in his life is this incredible thing. Is that time after time, and despite his brokenness, his fallenness, and all his flaws, that the Bible speaks openly about. There seems to just be this movement of worship in David's life. That his heart was shaped and formed about the singular desire to honor God. So that even when he stepped out of line, even when there was sin decisions that he made in his life, as we all do, that there was this corrective in his life about the passion and worship of God. And his heart was continually shaped and formed. As you worship God. And that's what I'm praying happens with us over this series. We've talked about hearts of courage. We've talked about hearts of generosity. This weekend we're talking about what it means to have grace-filled hearts. Gracious hearts. Hearts that are full of grace as God's own heart is. And so we're going to look at another story in the life of David that shows us something about his heart. And how his heart, David's heart, resonated with the heart of God. Today we're going to see what a heart that has been shaped by grace looks like. And we're going to do that by talking about tables. Maybe you didn't see that coming. We're going to talk about tables, like actual tables today. More specifically, we're going to spend some time considering who it was that David invited to his table and all that it meant by the invitations that he gave. So what does a table and a heart of grace have to do with each other? We'll get there. First, I want to show you what my family table looks like. You can bring up that picture. That's our family table right now. The cat tends to sit on the chair that's all ripped up in the corner there. Uh, that's where he hangs out. But we kind of, that's our table. That's our family table right now in the home that we live in, very close to this building. And our story is probably a little different than most other families in that we've moved a lot as a family, both overseas and back to Canada and all over the country. And it seems like every time we arrive in a new place, a different table becomes part of our family's story in that place. The table came with the house when we moved in next door. This is a table that was there. We were grateful for it. I mean, I remember when we moved in, and one of the first things we did as the house is getting settled, we kind of sat around the table. Like, what's the view? Where is everybody? We all here, one, uh, five kids, somebody has to count, head count, make sure everybody made it on the, on the move. We're all here. We're all at the table. As I thought about it this week, one thing I've noticed over my life is that every table seems to have different rules or different expectations about them. I mean, depending on what kind of table you sit at, you start to pick up on the social rules or the expectations of that table, even culturally. You go to different parts of the world and you sit at different tables and you sit in different ways and you immediately acknowledge, oh, there's a set of rules about this table that I may not know about, different expectations. Now, I'm not sure what your experience was growing up, but growing up in my family when I, I was young, we actually had a lot of unspoken rules about the table, which, by the way, still count as rules. The unspoken ones still count, which you're going to hear about in a minute. You see, when I was a kid, we actually had two tables in my home. Maybe you had this too. One was the kitchen table. That's where breakfast and lunches and everyday meals would happen. And then there was the dining room table, right, where we were only to sit on special occasions. Like kids, stay out of the dining room. Anyone else grow up with two tables, the two table system? Yeah, stressful, right? 
Because the dining room was like the sacred space, the sanctuary of mom's stuff. That's where her china cabinet was. And it wasn't that common in my family's story for us to sit at the table in that room. Even when guests would come over, if there was quite a few people, uh, we would still kind of spread out. And I just remember um, guests would come because that's when the dining room table would be used, right? That's the only time guests were having company. There's company coming. So get the dining room table ready. And when they would come, I still wouldn't get to sit at the dining room table. Why? Because I was always relegated to the kitchen table with the other kids. The, ah, the infamous kid table, right? Anyone else have those? Which is really just a way of containing the mess, kind of in a central location. Makes for easy cleanup. Now, I have an older brother who's four years older than me. Older sister who's five years older than me. I'm the youngest. And I remember when my brother and sister started to graduate up to the adult table. And I, the youngest was left on the outside looking in, marginalized because of my age, under the oppression of the family, left to beg for scraps at the kids' table as the adults reveled in their superiority over me. At least that's what I was thinking when I was six. I mean, that was all that was going on in my head. And I wanted so badly to be invited to that table. So one day there was company over on Sunday afternoon, because that's when company would come, right? Sunday after church, company's coming. The roast was in the oven. Everybody gets around the table. The food gets served. And I decided that day, I remember like it was yesterday, I wanted to let it be known that I belonged at the big boys' table. And I thought, I have to leave a mark of some kind. I need to let it be known that would forever signify that I belong at that table, not this crummy little table. So in my mind as a child, I thought this would be a fantastic idea. I went and found a black permanent marker. (laughs) And I waited for prayer time to come when I knew everybody's eyes would be closed. They're all sitting around the table, and Dad's doing the prayer, and I sneak from the kitchen into the dining room under my mother's chair, because every eye is closed, every head bowed, and I sit under the table while the prayer is going on, and I take the black marker, and I write... Wade was here, right across the bottom of my mother's dining room table. I'm going to give you two insights about that. Here's two points for the message today. Although it had never been explicitly stated that it was against the rules to write on mom's furniture, I learned that unspoken rules still count on days like that, and it can hurt. Second, if you're going to vandalize something, which I don't condone, it's officially against Rexdale policy, but if you're going to vandalize something, don't write your own name. I mean, don't identify yourself as the one who's done it. Like, I mean, to this day, I wish I'd written my brother's name there or something instead. But every table has rules, doesn't it? Like, where each person would sit and would always sit in the same spots. I remember, I can put myself there right now. Dad was always here. Mom at the end, my brother beside me, and my sister across from me. We never voted on this. We never voted on what position. Nobody made the assignments, but we all had a place. We knew where our place was. You know, it's kind of the same now. You know, with my wife and I and our, and our kids, around our table, there's kind of these general rules about where everyone sits. And it mostly depends on which day I'm putting the perfect combination of personalities in proximity to one another so as to avoid relational catastrophe, right? And it works out most days. But one thing I love in our family is that everyone knows they have a place at the table. And they always will. The kids know that. They will always, always 
have a place at the table no matter what. And you know, there's a deep human instinct, I think, that tells us that we all need a place at a table. We need a place to belong. We need a place to be us and to not have a place. Not to have a table to be at, I think, is one of the most isolating, lonely, and terrible feelings you can have. And I think some of you have grown up with the table being a place where your table rules were stifling and depressive. And your table memories aren't good ones, and so you prefer to eat standing up. Or eat in front of the TV or with the computer running. Or on the move, because the table actually reminds you of things that you'd rather not think about. And you don't want to go there at all. Maybe you used to have a place at the table, but because of some situation or decision, you just don't feel like you belong at that table anymore because rules have been made and you're on the outside. Or maybe it's the other way around. And someone has done something to you, and although you have a place at the table, you've made it clear that they're not welcome. He's not welcome. She's not welcome anymore at this table because the rules are in place. And everybody knows them. And you're not going to break the rules of the table. But maybe today's the kind of day where some of the table rules need to get broken. You see, some table rules are there to ensure that everyone has a place. I mean, those rules, man, those need to be upheld. It's an act of grace. But there are other table rules that absolutely need to be broken by grace. Rules to be upheld by grace, rules to be broken by grace. And in the story of King David and his table in 2 Samuel 9, we see both certain rules being upheld and certain table rules being obliterated. So would you open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. We have accelerated a long way forward in our story from last weekend. And we're now in a place in the story where David has established his throne as king over Israel He has his palace in Jerusalem, and here he sits now in this kind of place of security. And it says in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1, the scriptures will be coming up on the screen if you want to follow along. David asks, it kind of comes in 2 Samuel 9, it's kind of an an aha moment for David. Because in this place of security, in this place of stability, and it says, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? We're going to pause right there. Let's back up a little bit and see why David is asking this odd question. You see, this whole scene is taking place about a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. This is a long time ago, 3,000 years ago. And David at this time was the second king to rule over the nation of Israel. The first king, as we've learned over the last number of weekends, was a man named Saul. Now Saul started off his reign following God. He started off his reign in the right trajectory. He would seek God, he would honor God, he would wait on the Lord. And yet after time, things started to deteriorate in Saul's heart and life. He started to take shortcuts in worship. He started to get panicky about his position. He started to feel very territorial about his leadership. And although he started off, King Saul did, kind of moving in the right direction of what godly leadership would look like, it all got hijacked by pride. And it wasn't long before Saul began to completely disregard God and do things his own way. And see, while Saul was still king, there was this young teenager kid named David who was proving himself 
within the nation of Israel to be strong and popular and successful in battle. I mean, that at the time, how you distinguished yourself on the, in, in the whole caste system really was, are you good in battle? Can you be a protector of the nation? And David just excelled both in worship and in battle. And God was evidently with David and King Saul began to envy him, began to have this pathological jealousy for this young David. Saul was deeply jealous of David. And the Bible tells us that on one occasion, while all of this jealousy stuff is going on, Saul has established as king. David's just an officer in his, in his military. That on one occasion, King Saul decided to invite David to eat at his table with him. And that was a big deal. I mean, to be invited to the king's table was the greatest honor you could have. And Saul says, David, I want you to come and eat at my table. But the scriptures say that Saul really wasn't interested in the meal. He was using the king's table as a ploy to get David close enough to kill him. Saul wanted to eliminate him. Now, this is really dark, really dark. Because the invitation to eat at the king's table was about way more than just having a good meal together. Among other things, it was actually an offer of acceptance and of protection. To eat at the king's table, it was rarely just a one-time offer. When the king opened his table to you, it was this ongoing relational bonding invitation. That's what it was. It means that you had found favor with the king. And that you can count on things going well for you. To eat at the king's table means that you're coming under the umbrella, under the covering of his grace and of his mercy. And that your life is looking up. Because to eat at the king's table means to be treated as one who is in a familial bond, who is in this place of relational intimacy with the king of the land. That's the expectation. When the king in Israel invited you to eat at his table, that's what's at stake. That's what's really going on. It was an honor. And Saul, so jealous of David, decided to use his table, not as a place of an umbrella of grace and a covering of righteousness, but instead decided to be deceitful about it and was planning to use the table as a way to kill David. Well, David ends up getting tipped off about Saul's plan and he stays away from the table. The one who told David about Saul's plan was none other than a man named Jonathan who just so happened to be Saul's son and David's best friend. Talk about being in a rough position. Saul had a little bit to drink one day, and he's around the table talking, and it slips out what his plans are for David. When Jonathan found out about his father's scheme to kill David, the Bible says that Jonathan got up from the table. Or another way of saying it, Jonathan left his father's table. Now, we all understand this, is saying way more than just about where Jonathan is getting his next meal from. This was an expression of costly loyalty. The sacrificial act of a loving heart. Jonathan broke the table rules of his father to show allegiance to his friend David and to hopefully keep his father from doing something horrible. Now we skip forward a number of years. Come in the time machine with me. Because as we go forward, we come to a place in the story where Saul is now dead. Saul ended up committing suicide. The destructive pattern of his life just took him right to the point where he took his own life. Jonathan was dead, David's best friend. And now David 
is firmly in control of the kingdom because all of his enemies have been defeated. And then David asks this question. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was one. One descendant left in the line of Saul. As David asks this question, whoever that one person would, is, is now in enormous danger. As the one remaining descendant of the former king who tried to have the present ruling now king killed, it's a really vulnerable and precarious position to be in. You see, here is the rules, the other rules of the king's table. Was that any potential threat to your power had to be eliminated without mercy. You can't have heirs to the throne running around out there. No questions asked. Let's see what happens. 2 Samuel 9 verse 2 says, Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. And the king, that is David, asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. What are you saying there? Don't worry, he's no threat to you. Yet David asks, where is he? The king asked. And Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. Now we meet him. When Mephibosheth, I've been practicing that name all week. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. At this point, Mephibosheth is terrified. He was expecting this to be some kind of trick. I mean, remember what Mephibosheth's grandfather, Saul, had tried to do to David by inviting him in? Remember that? Everybody knew about that. Invite him to the king's table to show kindness or to kill him? I mean, Mephibosheth isn't stupid. He knows what this day is all about. This is the day when the last threat to David's throne gets eliminated. He knows the rules of the king's table, and Mephibosheth knows that he's done for. This is his end. And because of his condition, he can't even run away. Verse 7. Look at these great words. Because David sees it. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, my best friend. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. Look at this line. And you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Do you know how much stuff that was? Do you know how much stuff Saul had as the first king of Israel? Do you know how much land belonged to the king, King Saul, before David took the throne? And David is saying to Ziba, listen, you're now in charge. I've given everything that used to belong to Saul to this Mephibosheth. It's now his. He says, you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops. Mephibosheth is now your master. He gets to get all the, all the payoffs so your master's grandson may be provided for. 
And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. He says it twice now. And says, now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. It's letting us know it's going to require a lot of manpower to look after all that Mephibosheth now owns. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever the Lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, here's the third time, because he always ate at the king's table. And it's like, even though he was lame in both feet. Remember, to eat at the king's table meant that you were going to live under the protection. You were going to live under the grace. You were going to live under the favor of the king. It meant you were granted royal status. It meant that you were given the identity, an identity that you didn't even deserve. It was like being adopted and chosen because of grace, simply because of undeserved favor, something that can't be earned or purchased. And what is the usual response to extravagant grace being poured out? I mean, when human beings first learn about grace, that there is this free gift of life, this free gift that's given not for no reason but grace and love. What's the usual human response to grace? It's an astounding thing. As David starts to confer on Mephibosheth this identity of sonship, this identity of belonging, what is Mephibosheth's response? He says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? King, I don't belong at your table. I mean, the rules keep me out. I know that. I kind of know what this is all about. I know how life works. I know that in the kingdom, you're supposed to kill me and you have to declare me as worthless. I'm essentially already dead to you. Just finish the job. And he goes on in one sense to say, you know what? Even if I wasn't a descendant of Saul, the man who tried to have you killed, even if I wasn't his descendant, I mean, look at me. King David, you're not even supposed to associate with someone who has a disability like this. I know the rules of the table and I don't belong with you. And now David's heart, which was a heart that was so much like God's in so many ways, is moved by this terrified and troubled man. And he says to him, no, 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 you don't understand. You're not a dog to me. As long as I have a table, you have a table. As long as I have a chair, you have a chair. You know what? I am changing the rules. There's no more fighting, no more killing, no more revenge. You call yourself a dog. I call you by your name. And now I bestow on you all the privileges and blessings of what it means to be one of my own children. Why did David do this? Because of a love-filled promise. You see, David had made a covenant with his friend Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father. And the covenant was this. The promise, the agreement was this, that, that someday... If David was ever in a position to do so, that he would bring an end to the enmity and anger between his family and the family of Saul through an act of grace. It's right here. David and Jonathan had agreed many, many years ago that the bloodshed had to stop, that the revenge and the killing had to stop. And the only way for the violence to end, the only way for there to be reconciliation was not another act of violence. It's not killing off all the descendants. They decided years ago that if any one of them was in a position to do so, they would stop the fight with an act of extravagant grace. And David is sitting in his own palace one day 
absolutely secure in his place of kingship. And then he remembers that he had made a promise to bring to an end the enmity that existed between his line and the line of Saul. And he asks the question, is there anyone left in the line of Saul to whom I what? To whom I can show kindness. And there's this one terrified, troubled man who ends up sitting at the king's table like one of the king's own children. And I mean, this costs David a lot. Think of what it costs David to give servants, to give land, to give property, to give livestock, to give everything back to someone that belonged to David, had belonged to Saul, and now just gives it away. David himself absorbing the cost of what it means to be gracious to someone else. It costs David so much. It costs Mephibosheth nothing other than to accept an invitation to sit at the table. And it's just grace. It's just sheer grace. And the surprise that comes with it because no one, no one saw this coming because everyone knows how the world works. If someone's against you, you get after them first. If someone's coming after you, you go after them. If you have an opportunity for power, if you have the opportunity to get one up on the person that's against you, you do it at all costs. And yet David chooses another way. The rules of the king's table were flipped upside down by the power of grace. Undeserved favor. So that a new story of reconciliation and love could replace the narrative of revenge and hostility. The scriptures say Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Isn't that an incredible story? I mean, you can tell a lot about a person's heart by who they make room for at their table. Jesus was always getting in trouble for this, wasn't he? I mean, in Jesus' day, who you shared your table with was a huge deal. I mean, you shared the people who were like you. You shared your table with the people that could advantage you. You tried to eat at the table with those who were kind of in the same socioeconomic, religious, spiritual standing, or hopefully those a little bit above you that could give you a hand up in life. Who you sat at the table with was a way of saying that I identify with these people. These are my people. The people I eat with are the people that I'm intimately connected in life with. It was how you showed acceptance and protection and friendship and love to share a table was more than about eating. It was more than about filling the hunger pangs. To eat at a table in Jesus' time was about the invitation to share life together. And those were the rules of the table. And you always, always, always wanted to be at the table with people who could advantage you. And so lots of religious leaders were so careful about who they ate with, with all sorts of reasons. They had scrolls and scrolls of, of rules about who could be at the table and who couldn't, who could touch and who couldn't. Who could be there? Let's have less seats as opposed to more seats because we've got to make sure that the people around the table with us reflect well on who we are. And Jesus, on the other hand, wasn't careful at all, was he? In fact, he was deliberately open about who he shared the table with. I mean, he loved sharing a meal with the most unlikely, unrespectable, unholy candidates in the whole place. And he did it all the time on purpose. Jesus took all the rules and expectations of the table and flipped them upside down. Isn't it like the God of the universe who loves us so much to come put on flesh and not come in at the upper echelons of society and say, who's like me in this? 
No, instead he comes right down to the bottom. And he says, I'm putting on flesh and dwelling among you. And what you're going to see is when you eat at the table with me, you're going to be absolutely stunned that I'm full of love and faithfulness, like John 1.14 says. When God shows up at the table and invites you in, what you find? Love and faithfulness. To the great surprise of anyone who's ever experienced the extravagant grace of God. I'm telling you, the world needs to see the followers of Jesus. Instead of excluding people saying or saying it's us versus them or insiders versus outsiders and creating a whole bunch of rules that just act as obstacles and barriers to relationship with God, the people of Jesus need to start by saying, everybody's welcome at our table. My table's open to anybody who will come and eat and experience life with me. I mean, it happens as a church. I mean, every single weekend and as we go online, we have this incredible opportunity to show what it's like to be a community of faith that is open to anybody, whether investigating Christ, committing to Christ, growing in Christ, that you have a place here. And we want to walk with you. And based on skin color or language or creed or previous religion or whatever else, the fact that you're here, you belong here. And you have a place here. And we want to walk towards Jesus together and be formed and shaped by his life in us. Isn't that what the world needs to see? I mean, the world is so convinced of all the things that the church is against. Does the world know what we're for? I mean, we can be known for all the stuff we're against and all the rules that we have and the things that say yes to no and all these sorts of things. I would love this church to be known for what we're for, for the things we really believe in and the convictions of our hearts about the fact that everybody, everybody is welcome here. Would it also be said of our homes and who we sit with and who we eat with Because here's the truth of the matter. The only reason any of us are at the table of relationship with God is because of an an irrational act of grace towards me and towards you. I mean, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again and opened the door to peace and meaning and love, you know, none of us deserved any of that. We're just these beggars with nothing to offer. And yet God comes to us and says, I offer you life. Would you come and eat at my table? You can reject the invitation if you want, but you know the invitation's there. And many of us have accepted that invitation to eat at God's table. The whole metaphor of doing life in the way of God under the umbrella of his grace, under the covering of his righteousness. And there isn't a single one of us that says we deserve any of it. I mean, isn't that what grace is? Undeserved favor poured out lavishly upon us. I mean, it's just grace. And it's the biggest surprise in all of human history that God looks at us, removes the labels that we've given ourselves, and instead calls us by name. We walk around with so many labels, don't we? What was Mephibosheth's label? Dead dog. How many times did that phrase played over in his head as his true identity? Someone worthless, someone essentially lifeless, something with nothing to offer, dirty, unclean, all those sorts of things. That's what he called himself. What did David call him? Mephibosheth, my son, come to my table. Isn't it amazing that God comes to each one of us, and as he starts to extend extravagant grace to us, what's usually the first thing we do? We put up our labels. Well, this is who I am. I'm dirty. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I'm ugly. I'm a failure. Of all of these things. And God in an act of grace takes all of those labels, whether we've adopted them or they've been put on us, and he moves them all aside and he looks you in the eye and he calls you by name. 
He calls you daughter. He calls you son. He chooses you. He adopts you and makes you his own. And then he invites you to dinner. And you can have a place at his table by responding to the invitation of free and costly grace that he freely offers to you. It's why we come to this table, the Lord's table, sometimes called the communion table. Communion is a word for relationship, this way of togetherness. You see, this weekend we have the privilege, the honor of coming to the Lord's table. And it's not because I'm inviting you. It's because he invites you. It's his table. And he has called this a table of mercy. Jesus calls this a table of grace. And when you come and eat at his table, when you accept his invitation, you come in under the covering of his grace and mercy, his forgiveness and his love. That's what this is. You know, when we hold the bread, when we hold the cup, this represents an entire meal that Jesus shared with his first followers. And he says, you know what relationship with me is like? It's like this. Like my body gets broken for you. You know, it's going to cost me everything. It will cost you nothing, really. To accept the free gift of grace, to come into relationship and life with me, Jesus says, tell you what, you bring me all your brokenness. You bring me all your labels. And I'll be broken for you and I will give you wholeness and I will call you by your name. And I will give you a place at my table. And he says, not only do you have something to eat, I want to give you something to drink. You see, at my table... There's always enough for everyone. And this juice, this wine is like a, a picture of a new covenant, he says. It's like a new way of promise. It's like a new way of relationship. That this ends the bloodshed. I mean, this ends all the violence. He says, I take it. And I'm ending the enmity between God and people through an extravagant act of grace. And so he gives us a cup and he says, I want you to come to my table. And anybody that comes to the table is essentially saying this, I now choose to receive your mercy and grace. And you know what? You don't have to. You know, Mephibosheth could have received the king's invitation and said no. He could have said, I'd like to live exactly where I am. I'm not going to risk it at all. And stayed right where he was and missed out on the greatest gift of his entire life. He didn't. He just responded to an invitation of mercy. I want to say to some of you this morning, you've been hanging out at the church a while and talking to people each weekend who have come in the last few weeks who have yet to cross the line. You have yet to respond to God's mercy and grace to you. Some of you I've had great talks with and I love that you're on the journey. And sometimes people don't decide to follow Jesus because they've never been invited to. So I want this weekend to simply invite you that if you've never experienced, you've never received God's offer of grace and mercy, he's not asking you to work for his grace. He's not asking you to earn his favor. He's already giving it to you. And simply an act of confessing that, God, I need you. God, forgive me. God, I don't want to live life my own way. I choose you as my Lord and leader. I want to come to your table in that act of decision, in that one prayer. You get adopted as God's own child and he treats you as his own, his son, his daughter. And you can make that decision today. And whether you've ever taken communion or not before, 
Maybe this can be the first weekend where you accept the invitation to God's table and come in under his grace and mercy. He has it for you. And I'll invite you to partake in just a moment because this is what communion is all about. All of us are being offered grace and mercy today. It costs Jesus everything to give us a meal of purpose and meaning of forgiveness and freedom. And it's a free gift. And so I'm going to ask you to consider two things as we come to the table together in just a few moments. First, as you receive the bread and as you receive the cup, I want you to remember Jesus. I want you to think about everything that it cost him to extend to you the amazing grace that is being poured out on you today. How it was all him. That he's the rescuer of us. It's not like we do God any favors by choosing to follow him. It's like God's really got one when he got me. Not at all. We remember God's mercy and grace. It was an extension of love to awaken us out of sin and darkness. He chose as you. So as you hold the bread, as you hold the cup, let's remember Jesus together. But then secondly, I want us to think about others. We're going to remember Jesus. And we're going to think about others. And I want you to consider this as you take communion today. Is there anyone, anyone in your life that you don't want at your table? Is there anyone in your relational world that you're not okay with? Is there a coldness at your table these days? And I know that there's a complexity to relationships and I'm not undermining that whatsoever. But I'm wondering how many of us, this was on my heart so strong, and even if it's just for one person this weekend, it's worth it. Is there someone that you literally have to invite to dinner this week? to get at your table because they haven't been there in a while. And it's time to break some rules and invite someone for the meal, a meal of grace, a meal of mercy, to get things set right. Is there enmity that needs to be resolved by an act of extravagant grace? Because as those who have received the extravagant grace of God, what does he call us to do? Extend it to others. So as we receive communion today, would you remember Jesus in this way of looking at David and Mephibosheth as this foreshadowing to all that Jesus was going to do for us. Let's remember Jesus and let's think about others. I'm going to invite those who are going to be serving community to come to the front now. And even as they come, let's prepare our hearts by remembering Jesus and thinking about others. Allow me to pray for us as we receive the bread. And I just, as you receive the bread, I'm going to ask you to hang on to it and we're going to partake of it together as one body. And so, Jesus, we come before you in full acknowledgement of our need of your grace and mercy. And you're inviting us to your table today. And the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has come. Come to me and receive. Come to my table. And for all who receive, know that in this act, you're saying to Jesus, I receive your grace and mercy, and I remember you, and I remember all that it cost you. And then as we partake in just a moment, we're going to think about others, and we're going to ask the question, is there anyone that we haven't wanted at our own tables? For those who have received extravagant grace, extravagant grace cannot be withheld from others. So as you have received, freely, freely give. And we do this in remembrance of you, Jesus. Amen.
But I pray that as you go, that we would, this would be the kind of week where we're constantly remembering Jesus, even if it takes going back into that story of David and Mephibosheth as that foreshadowing of the way in which Jesus invites you into relationship with him. This would be a week of worship where you absolutely pour out your heart to God in gratitude. And as that happens, would this also be a week of extravagant grace being extended to those in our relational world around us for the glory of God and the blessing of his people. Go in peace. Have a great weekend.